You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. We uh, are picking up again today our preaching series through Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Last time we were in it, we were in the first part of chapter 2, where Paul was explaining to these early Christians uh, about the end times, explaining to them how the end times were going to go down. They had received some bad teaching, uh, that the day of the Lord had already come, that somehow they may have missed it, Uh, and Paul uh, wrote to correct their understanding of the end times uh, and to allay some of their fears and concerns. Uh, But uh, in the course of that, and as you may remember from that sermon, I mean, there are some daunting things uh, he mentioned about the last times, right? The the, uh, now unrestrained evil of uh, of Satan and Antichrist uh, unleashed uh, on the earth. Um, people being uh, deceived and deluded. Uh, and uh, Paul must have felt a, uh, a, a need to continue to assure these early Christians that uh, as believers in Jesus, that they had ultimately nothing to fear from the end times, from the last day, from God's judgment. And that's what we're going to hear today, this, this further assurance as he sort of closes the loop on this uh, issue of the end times. These are strong words of courage. They're strong words of comfort, uh, not just for the Thessalonians, but for you today. Uh, for we are, just like the Thessalonians were, living in a time where the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in our world. We have seen it. We feel it. We experience it. So we need these words too. So our text today is the last part of chapter 2, the last five verses of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, it's in the, um, uh, the, the text is in the bulletin. And let me pick up these uh, pieces of music just in case. Our worship team is going to need them. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. This is is God's Word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through 
grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the inerrant and infallible word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, even as you use these words to strengthen and equip the Thessalonian Christians to persevere through the problems of their day, uh, I pray now on all our behalves to use them again to strengthen us and equip us that we stand and not fall by the power of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You don't have to know me very long to know that uh, one of my great passions in life is fly fishing. I, I counted it up. I've now been fly fishing for over 30 years. It's hard to believe. I've, I was introduced to it by a friend, and, but I've really learned over the years from watching really good fly fishermen and asking a lot of questions. And as I would hike up to and approach rivers with much better fly fishermen than I was, I, I discovered that one of the things that these really good fly fishermen didn't do is fish, at least right away. I was always eager, in a hurry, right? Get the waders on, jump in the rivers, get that fly uh, on the water. Uh, but I, I soon discovered I was the only one doing that. I mean, the really good fishermen waited. They would sit there for what seemed like an eternity to me, maybe 15, 20 minutes, just watching the water, staring at the river. I learned that they were watching where and how the trout were feeding. And then they'd go over and into the river, turn over rocks and, and look at the bottom of rocks, see what kind of bugs were in the water. And then they'd walk over to some streamside bushes and shake the bushes to see what kind of bugs were above the water. And only then, and only then, would they finally rig up and, and start fishing. Of course, I've, I'd started 20 minutes ago, but they always outfished me. Why? Because information is power. And they took the time and the effort to get the information. And that information was power. Uh, that works, that's true in a lot of contexts, of course, not just fly fishing. And it's certainly true for living the Christian life. And what Paul is really doing here in these last five verses is giving you, as Christians, information information about what God has already accomplished in your life that knowing it will power you, empower you to live by faith in Jesus no matter what challenges face you tomorrow morning or next week or this year. So we're going to look at this text under two big headings. The first heading is what, what, what God has already done in your life, if you're a Christian. What God has already done in your life. And then second, how you respond to what God has already done 
in your life. So that's the outline. So first, what has God already done in your life? According to this text, four things. He chose you, He called you, He taught you, and He encouraged you. I want to look at each one of those four things that Paul touches on here just briefly. Number one, God chose you. That's verse 13. You know, everybody, you know, the, the doctrine of, of God's choice, the, the, the technical word is election, is, is always a tough one. And I, and I understand why it's tough, and, I, and, I, and I'm sympathetic. Um, a lot of people wrongly think, though, that it's, you know, it's all about Paul, that Paul was always about uh, talking about election, but that's, it's not true. Jesus said it. Uh, Jesus said it to his disciples, and by extension, he says it to you and me. John verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That was true of the original disciples. It's true of you today if you're a Christian. Now, does that mean you, 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 you didn't make a choice to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus by faith? No, of course you did. You can probably all, many of you can, can recall uh, that the, the time you made that choice. And that was a real choice. But what Jesus and Paul uh, are emphasizing is that behind the choice that you make is the prior choice of God, of you, anchored in eternity. And I just, before we get into this, I do want to say, I, I recognize that there are people here that aren't Christians, and you, be, you may wonder, uh, if you're wondering, well, what, how do I know if I'm chosen? I mean, if, 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 if becoming a Christian is a matter of God choosing me, how do I know God has chosen me? Actually, the mere fact that you're, you're asking that question and shows and demonstrating some concern about it reflects that you may be. It's the people that don't care the people that would, would not, um, not be interested in that issue at all uh, are, are the ones that, you know, I, 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 pray, I pray for. But if, look, if this is something you're concerned about, if it's an issue you, 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 you want to know more about, if you, God is already at work in your heart. It may indeed be calling you to him. So God, God says, our text says that God chose you, Christian, as the first fruits. That's what our text says. But in the ESV, you'll see it, it's footnoted and, and, and it gives in the footnotes another way to translate it. And I actually prefer the footnoted translation and some of your tr other translations will reflect that. It's God, the translation would be God chose you from the beginning. That's really more consistent with Paul, how Paul talked uh, in the New Testament about God's choice of you. Uh, said, the, said it in Ephesians, right? God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, Christian, 
right? Paul is reminding us here that your destiny, your life, does not ultimately depend on you. Your life and your destiny is grounded on God's choice of you and Jesus' performance for you. And isn't that more secure and stabilizing and peace-giving than any than any reality that you could produce yourself. You, Christian, are the result of God's personal choice. And God chose you, it says here in verse 13, to be saved. And then Paul goes on to say how we're saved. And he mentions two things. We're saved through two things. We're saved through belief in the truth, or faith in the truth. It could be translated that way. And of course, that sort of focuses on our side of the, tr- uh, of the transaction, right? Focusing on what we do. We believe. We have faith. But remember, Paul says in another letter, e- even, even our part, our, our part in the transaction, our faith, our belief in Jesus comes from God as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of your work so that no one may boast. So we're saved through belief in the truth. And that comes to us as a gift from God. It's our belief, but it comes to us as a gift. And then we're saved, the second thing he says is that we're saved through sanctification by the Spirit. You see, Paul is thinking of salvation not just as the, 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 what happens when you place your faith in Jesus and, and God does that declaratory act, we call it justification, that declaratory act of, of, of declaring that you are uh, you are deemed just before God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Paul is thinking of salvation in a, in, a, in a bigger way than that, in a stretched out way, right? He's thinking about it like he talked about it in Romans, Romans 8, right? Where he said, where Paul wrote, uh, those whom God chose, God called. Those whom God called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And it's that stage between being justified and glorified that's, that's sanctification. That's what links those things. And we typically think that, that sanctification is about what we do. But ultimately it isn't. Look, look who does it here. Look verse 13. It's through sanctification by the Spirit. Ultimately it's not what you do. It's what the Spirit does in you. When God saves you, he doesn't leave you the same. He transforms you, and his agent of transformation is the Spirit. The Spirit is doing that work of transformation in you. So Christian, not only have you been chosen, but but you have now the Spirit in you who has is, has been transforming you, past tense, and is currently transforming you sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus. The bottom line here, right, is that there is, 
the, the one thing that's cer certainly true about God's choice of us is that there is no room for Christian arrogance. And it is awful to see it uh, in, in communities w w that believe this doctrine, but, but then take pride in it. Like somehow uh, God was, you know, was right in, 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 in choosing. Of course God would choose us. <laughs> like my, my old seminary professor, Ed Clowney, who many of you know, used to be here at New Life. He's graduated to heaven. But uh, he used to say, hey, we're not choice people. We're messed up sinners who have remarkably been chosen by a gracious God. A God who does all of the saving. So do you see how this truth, this truth of God's choice, really multiplies your security, your stability, and your strength to, 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 to face the challenges of being a Christian today. Make it personal. God chose you. Second thing that Paul talks about here, the second thing that God has already done in your life, number two, God called you. Verse 14. He chose you and then he called you. I like the way John Stott put it. John Stott wrote, I think the one of the best commentaries on 2 Thessalonians. He says, you were chosen in eternity and called in time. How are you called in time? Well, it says here, God called you through the gospel. And the gospel is just that, you know, religious word we, you hear all the time in church, which really means simply an announcement of good news. And the announcement of good news is that God has sent his son Jesus to live for your merit, to die for your demerits, and to be raised for your justification forever. And this is why the fact that God chooses someone to be saved never, never rules out evangelism. Drives me crazy when people who celebrate the doctrine of election, that celebrate, they know that they had to be chosen by God because they would never choose God otherwise. But then go from there to say, well, then evangelism is unnecessary because, you know, if God chooses and God calls, then, then uh, you know, it's going to happen. I don't need to do anything. God's going to do it. Wrong. It's the wrong conclusion. The doctrine of God's choice requires evangelism because God effects his choice, his eternal choice of a person, you, by calling that person in time. And he calls that person in time. How? By, by seeing that they hear the gospel. And how are they going to hear the gospel? That's you. That's me. God's choice is, is affected by calling, and the calling is affected by the hearing of the gospel. And what were you called for? What, what, what's the ultimate purpose of being called? 
Well, he says it here in verse 14, and this is where I got the title of the sermon, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? Almost everybody just sort of blows over these words, and I get it, because it's, isn't it easy to sort of read over these, those words? They sound religious, they would only be said in church, and nobody knows what they mean. And it's the ultimate purpose for, for, for God calling you. Remember that golden thread in Romans 8, right? Those God chooses, he calls, those he calls, he justifies, those he justifies, he glorifies. And that's what this is talking about, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I know it's, it, it's super hard to get our minds around. And I... But I've been trying, and I still can't. But it's worth the effort. Um, think about this. Every good thing you're experiencing in the world today, your love for another person, a love of another person for you, great food and drink, fresh air, natural beauty, family, Music, the sense of accomplishment in a job well done, countless good things that we experience in this world are, to, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, just sunbeams from the sun. Lewis has probably done more thinking about this glory question, maybe Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards and, and, and C.S. Lewis have really thought through this, you know, what, what, what does this glory mean? What does it mean that we're going to participate, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Lewis looks at, you know, the good things in life and he goes, you know, we, we ought to be grateful for them. And, and gratitude says, you know, says something like, how good of God to give us these things. But he says, it, you know, it's really, it, you got to go further than that. He says, don't stop with gratitude. He says, go on to adoration. And adoration or worship says, what kind of God must he be? That all these amazing things that he's giving us here are merely just faint glimmers of who he actually is. See, that's what verse 14 is saying, is that, is that you being saved, you going to heaven, as we say it, is really you getting and possessing the glory of Jesus. Follow the sunbeams back to the sun. That's going to be you. You will, because of what God has already done in you, chosen you and called you, you will know in some sense, and in some, you will know and experience, and in some sense, possess beauty, pleasure, rapture, satisfaction, all ramped up exponentially, right? Infinitely. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to feel like. 
but I know it's what your heart and my heart is really longing for. And one of the reasons I know our hearts are longing for it is that the good things down here, the good things that we experience here, the best things, the things that we're tempted to put our, wrap our hearts around, ultimately don't answer the longing in our hearts. They're, they just don't. They drive us up the sunbeam. Only salvation, only obtaining the glory of Jesus is ultimately going to satisfy the longing in your heart and in my heart. You know, so and what, I'm, what I'm really trying to address here, and maybe it's especially true or especially applicable to, the, to younger people who, you know, can't, don't, we don't, you don't understand heaven or, or, you know, heaven doesn't really hold any attraction. You know, why would I want to go to heaven? This is, this is something Western people, you know, and, and, that live in, in the prosperity and the freedom that we enjoy, you know, have a problem thinking that heaven is, 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 worth, is worth the effort. <laughs> um, you know, our brothers and sisters in, 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 in poverty and in, and in danger in third world countries, um, don't have the same. They, they long for it uh, like, like we don't. But what, what I want you to see is that is the, all of the goodness of this world that you do understand and that, and that you do really, you know, have your heart wrapped around is just, a, a, is just an hors d'oeuvre. It's just like... A, it's like looking at a star at night, right? We look at a star and it's just a little twinkle, twinkle little star. We, you know, it's actually a blazing sun that's billions of times you know, bigger and brighter than our sun, right? So he heaven is, is gonna be a place that's not just our ultimate destination, it's gonna be ultimate satisfaction, ultimate it's our ultimate home going. You know, we'll finally feel at home, I think. And it's going to be our ultimate adventure. And the point here, friends, is that God has already called you to it. He's called you to obtain this glory. Face tomorrow morning with that information that's true about you. He's chosen you. He's called you. And now number three, he's taught you. Verse 15, I know Paul is saying, we taught you, right? He's exhorting the Thessalonians to, to hold to the traditions that, that, that had been taught by him, Paul, and his, his associates. But the word there, traditions, is um, it's a technical term in the Greek. And what it, what it refers to is isn't what we think of tradition. It's a tradition, the traditions that Paul taught is a, is a term that means a distinct uh, body of knowledge that has been received f from someone and then you receive it and then you faithfully, without change or alteration, pass it on. And Paul... The apostles, including Paul, 
of course, received th- th- that body of knowledge from whom? From Jesus, right? From Jesus himself. So, so Paul knows, as, as he said in his first letter to the Thessalonians, that, um, that what he and his colleagues taught and passed on was not the word of men, it was actually the word of God. So, the Holy Spirit then brilliantly inspired the apostles to write the traditions down, right? So that they could be received, preserved, and faithfully passed on. And now you have them. You have the teaching of Jesus, the whole package in your Bible. So as you receive the word, as you read the word, as you hear the word preached and taught, you have been taught by God. And you continue as you read and and listen to it preached and taught. You continue to be taught by God himself. You know, I I am a big appreciator of the great courses. Any of you guys consume the great courses? Great, you know, it's a... uh, series of uh, classroom videos on any number of subjects taught by the world's leading experts in the field. I mean, you'd have to go to, you know, Harvard or someplace to, 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 to hear this professor, but you can, you can get him, uh, you know, on, on, a, uh, on the great courses. It's a great, wonderful resource. And, and I, I like to listen to him in the car, but think about what the Bible actually is. It's a great course. It's the great course, right? It's a course in cosmology and philosophy, theology, love, countless other subjects taught by God himself. It it is a breathtaking privilege. You've got the treasure map of the universe in your hand right now. Christian, you have been taught by God and you continue to be taught by God. You can face tomorrow. Finally, number four, God encouraged you. So he chose you, he called you, he taught you, and finally he encouraged you. This is verse 16. It says both Jesus and the Father. Where is it? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. What's interesting there, guys, is we have a plural subject. Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. Plural subject. This is where where Greek grammar actually helps. And then you have, but you, you you have two singular verbs. Gave comfort and good uh, no one yeah loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace if those are singular verbs so you have a plural subject but but Paul used a singular verb just it's a you know it's the grammar speaking to the truth that that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are two distinct persons but they are also one right it's the, it's the grammar teaching us trinity the trinity but, but the, 
But what, what he's saying here, of course, is that, is that God, both Jesus and the Father, have given you, by grace, eternal comfort. And I think a better way to translate that that, the, that we would resonate with is he's given us um, encouragement that doesn't stop. Encouragement that doesn't go away. And as good hope. I suspect you're probably like me. Um, I feel it acutely in my position as one of your pastors. I'm called upon often to, to, uh, to, to, to deal with people in, in, in times when, 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 when I, I need to ex, you know, encourage them and give them hope. And when I try to do it, uh, it, I, it always feels like it, it goes about three feet and then falls flat. Um, it, you know, my words sound shallow and um, trite, and it, you know, my encouragement at best doesn't last the day, and my hope, whatever hope I can deliver, it can disappoint. But the, in the good news of Jesus, right, in his life, death, and resurrection for you, what Paul is saying here is that you have been given, already been given encouragement that doesn't go away and, and a hope that will never disappoint you. We, we tend to think of hope in, in our day as wishful thinking. Hope in the New Testament mind, hope for Paul meant a rock solid confidence that God's gonna do in the future what he promised in the past. So God has encouraged you. He has given you good hope. And that encouragement continues. And that hope will never, ever disappoint. So you see, information is power. As you face the challenges of tomorrow, as you face the challenges of 2021, you face them, Christian, with the knowledge that God has chosen you, called you, taught you, and encouraged you. And that, that makes a huge difference when you wake up in the morning to the problems of your day, to just know that. Your, st- your security, your stability, your peace of mind tomorrow does not ultimately depend on you. It ultimately doesn't depend on your circumstances. It's already there as a result of what God has already done for you. That's good news. That's what God has already done for you. See, he's trying, Paul is saying, look, Thessalonian Christians, you don't have to worry about the future. Look what God's already done for you. So how do we respond? This is quicker uh, because it's a short answer. Uh, Verse 15, how do you respond to what God's already done in your life? Verse 15, you stand firm and hold on to the apostolic testimony concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, hold on for dear life to the gospel. I know a number of you have uh, hiked up into the Virgin River Narrows uh, in Zion National Park. Uh, I've seen them, I've walked at the very beginning, Linda and I have, we have not walked deep into the Narrows. if you don't know the Narrows, you've probably seen pictures, right? These, it's a beautiful red rock uh, 
canyon dug into the rock by the Virgin River, and it's a super narrow canyon. I mean, some places just feet apart, but it goes up hundreds of feet. It's, it's, it's a remarkable and beautiful uh, place. It's also a dangerous place. Linda and I uh, just uh, read recently an account of a, a flash flood that occurred in the Narrows several years ago. Not an infrequent danger uh, in, in that place. The, the, it's deceptive because it can, be, it can be sunny at the Narrows, but it can be a thunderstorm 25 miles away, and that thunderstorm, the rain from that storm comes thundering down into those narrows, and, and you have these horrific uh, flash floods. Well, one of those happened uh, a few years ago, White killed a number of hikers. Uh, a few were able to scramble up those sheer uh, red walls and, 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 and find tiny little footholds, little tiny ledges, uh, and, and, and skinny handholds, and they were just clinging to the wall a foot above the, uh, the, the flood for hours, in fact, through the night, uh, to, to not stand on that ledge, to, to let go of that handhold would mean, would mean certain death. And that's kind of the, the image that Paul is saying here. You, you have to, Stand firm on and hold on to Jesus and what he has done. That's, that's the response. Hold on. Now, some of you are already thinking, because I did, I, I, I thought this way, well, I'm weak. <laughs> you know? What happens if I don't stand firm? What happens if I don't hold on? What if I'm not spiritually strong enough to do that? If that's you, if you, if you, if you think like that, uh, like I did, you need to know, not surprisingly, right, that even your required response to the gospel is enabled and empowered by our gracious Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 2, one of my favorites. The Lord lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Your standing is enabled by Jesus. And that truth is affirmed in the New Testament by Paul in Romans 14, Romans 14 verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servants stand or fall and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. So stand Christian and he will make you stand. And then one of my favorites of all time, Philippians. Philippians 3, 12. Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. You're holding on 
Your holding on to the gospel is empowered and enabled by the deeper truth that Jesus Christ, Christian, is holding on to you. And he will not let you go. So hold on. One other quick point on this. This is not something you do alone. It's something we... There are two references here. Verse 13 and verse 15 to brothers. And, and in Paul's mind, that would have included brothers and sisters, even though the reference is masculine. Paul is speaking to the church and saying, brothers and sisters, men and women, we, we have to stand firm and hold on together, which means that we help each other stand firm, help each other hold on, help each other get to the finish line. And, do, and we have to do just like what Paul was doing there in the last verse, verse 17, praying for his friends, right? That God would continue to do what he's already done, comfort them, and empower them to live, speak, and act in a way that honors Jesus. So they, see, this is why congregations in the church of Jesus Christ are so vital, so important for you to be a part of whether it's new life or another one. We need to be together. It's in the context of the church where we hold each other up in the faith, where we hold on to each other. Maybe not in the pandemic, but we will. And, and where, where we pray for each other. Okay, last thought. I'm wrapping this up. I skipped something. You may have noticed and I did that because John Stott did that, um, and, it, and I thought it was effective. I'm following John Stott here. You know, you, you might get to the end of this sermon like this and go, well, what, you know, why? What, what holds all this together? Why in the world would God choose, call, teach, and encourage me? Why would he choose, call, teach, and encourage you? Well, the answer is in two places, in verse uh, 13, where Paul calls the, the, the Christians in Thessalonica, brothers beloved by the Lord. And then in verse 16, where Paul says, God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal hope, comfort and good hope through grace. You see, friends, the deepest magic that holds all of this together and drives what God has done for you Choosing you, calling you, teaching you, encouraging you. What's driving that is God's remarkable love for you. It's the greatest reality in the universe, and it's probably the hardest one to believe, the hardest one to accept. If you have any degree of self-knowledge, you know that it's hard to receive the love of another, right? Because you know you're not that lovable. You know that person who loves you is seeing you through eyes that don't, that don't understand the depth of, of your, your, your depravity. If it's hard to accept love from a fellow human being, it's even harder to accept it from a God who does see it, right? From whom nothing is hidden. God knows everything about me. My thoughts my lusts, my desires, my jealousies, my anger, 
all of that that gets unexpressed, all of that that I can hide from you, God sees. And I see it, and I wonder, can how can God love me? Well, lest you ever doubt that God loves you, look at, look at verse 16 again. God our Father who loved us and gave us. That should ring bells. Where, else, where, 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 where do you find that loved and gave pattern? Where else, what, what other place do you find that loved and gave pattern? Right, the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friend, if you ever, ever, Christian friend, ever doubt the love of God for you, an unbeliever, if you're wondering if God could love you, here's what you do. You look to Jesus. You look to the cross of Jesus. You look to the empty tomb of Jesus. These are historical events, historical realities that are the ultimate demonstration and the ultimate guarantee of God's love for you. God's love for you is the deepest reality in the universe and the one reality that you can bank your life on without reservation. God did. And he did it for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of assurance from Paul. Spoken to people who were looking at an uncertain future just like we are spoken to people that were under persecution and experiencing affliction and problems just like we are, spoken to, to Christians who were facing uh, unjust, un injustice in society and in government just like we are. God, thank you. Thank you for what you've already done in our life. Thank you that you are with us to empower our right response to you. Help us to stand fast, to stand firm, and hold on to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.